Welcome to episode 5 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we'll be discussing murder, specifically the distinctions in the law for different degrees and types of murder. Let's back up a little and start with homicide, which is the killing of a human being by another human being. Homicide, though it carries a negative connotation, does not imply criminality. For there to be homicide, there must be what's known as quote-unquote life in being. In other words, someone who was born alive and was alive at the time of the killing. Another necessary element for homicide to occur is the death of the human must be caused by another human being. Additionally, the act of that other human has to be the sole or proximate cause of death. Proximate causes of death don't necessarily include negligence or lack of action. Many jurisdictions require this proximate cause to occur within a year and a day of the death. So if I get shot and I don't immediately die of my wounds, even if I end up dying from immediate complications caused by the wounds three years later, murder has not technically been committed. Homicide is only considered criminal when it is not justified or excused. Before we dive into the nitty-gritty of murder, there are two main components of all crimes, actus reus and mens rea. Actus reus refers to the act itself, and mens rea refers to the mental component or intent behind the crime. Intent is usually pretty straightforward. Let's say you got fired and you believed it wasn't justified. You might feel very hurt and betrayed by your employer. Further, you decide to get revenge by killing the boss that fired you. You purchase a firearm and shoot your former boss, causing their death. You had the intent to kill as well as the lethal means. That's pretty cut and dry. But suppose you choose a different method that's not very likely to kill your former boss. You set up an elaborate booby trap, a Rube Goldberg type of device, that must work perfectly to kill the intended target, but very unlikely that it actually works. If you ended up being successful in killing your former boss, it would still be intentional homicide even if the success wasn't likely. Looking at it from a different angle, suppose your intent wasn't to kill your former boss but to ruin their home. You decide to detonate a bomb in their house when you think no one's home. And you inadvertently kill a house cleaner in the process. This is intentional homicide even though your intent wasn't to kill the house cleaner. You engaged in a dangerous behavior that made death likely in the event that someone was present. But sometimes it's not so easy establishing intent. There are common law doctrines that can help establish intent if necessary in that case. An example of this is the deadly weapon doctrine, which states that a person who intentionally uses a deadly weapon on another person, killing them, presumably intended to kill them. This doctrine can permit a jury to infer intent to kill. Deadly weapons can include guns, knives, rocks, cars, bombs, or even your own fists. Moving on to the act itself, this can be an action or an omission making up the physical elements of a crime. Usually intentional killings are done with affirmative actions, 
but there are some non-actions that would be classified as intentional killings if the person desired the victim to die. For example, a non-action could be leaving someone in a locked or disabled car without the keys on railroad tracks. This could be considered an intentional killing if you wanted the person in that car to die as a result of being trapped in that car. Even words can cause unintentional death. If you testify falsely as a witness to a crime that results in an innocent person being put to death, that would be an example of your words causing an intentional death. You can also be guilty of murder for failing to act when there exists the duty to act. This can relate to children. If you leave an infant, for example, alone in the bathtub and watch them drown, there was a duty for you to act and your failure to do so can be considered murder. But intent isn't solely attributed to the intended target. It can also be transferred to innocent bystanders who become unintentional victims who you did not mean to kill. Back to the previous hypothetical example, you decide to kill your former boss for firing you, so you go to the office with a gun and shoot them in their office. There's another person meeting with them at the time, and you kill that person as well as your former boss, presumably because they got in the way. In that case, you are guilty of murdering two people. Once you shoot the gun with the intention to kill someone, you're guilty of killing anyone who you hit, not just the person you want dead. And even if you act without the intention of killing the person, but intend to do great bodily harm that results in their death, that would also be considered murder. If you want to keep someone captive, for example, without the possibility of them running away, you may break their leg in an attempt to keep them from running. If you broke a bone that happened to nick an artery and they bled out and died, that would be murder. There is another concept called depraved heart, and this refers to circumstances where you may be guilty of murder if you act in a way that creates a high risk of death where death occurs. Drive-by shootings fall under this category. Excessive speeding in a school zone where children are present would also fall under this category. And this kind of willful disregard of unreasonable risk resulting in the death of another person shows malice, even if there's no express intent to kill or do great bodily harm. Now, there are different types of murder, one of which I want to talk about now. One type of murder uh, is called the felony murder rule in some states. Some states don't even have this anymore, but this rule is in effect when a death occurs during the process of a felony. Even if the person wasn't directly involved in the killing, if there was a felony in process, that person can be held responsible for murder. For a lot of jurisdictions that still have this rule in the books, the felony itself has to be inherently dangerous. Examples of dangerous felonies include kidnapping, rape, and robbery, just to name a few. It wouldn't include tax evasion, for example. The act of committing the felony must be the proximate cause of the death for murder to have occurred. If you set fire to a house and kill the occupants, for example, that's murder. 
if someone tried to rob that house as it was being burned down and then they died, you wouldn't be guilty of murdering that person. But all the rest of the people who were in the house, you would be guilty of murder. There needs to be, in that respect, a causal relationship between the felony act and the death itself. So if, for another example, you rob a bank and one of your hostages has a heart attack from the stress of the robbery and dies, that's felony murder. If there was a bank manager in the back who was unaware of the robbery, who happened to have a heart attack at the same time and died during the robbery, that's not felony murder. Now, not all states recognize the felony murder rule, and most only apply it to certain types of felonies. In more recent years, there's been a really significant backlash against this really antiquated rule, specifically the way that it was written that allows many possible interpretations to be made. Some people actually claim that it was written in a way that disproportionately affects youths and minority populations, along with women. One such case occurred in January of 2004. Four teenagers broke into a neighbor's home in the town of Paris, California. They were looking for money. Sean Khalifa, 15 at the time, was the lookout. He briefly entered the home to steal some candy when he saw the homeowner, 77-year-old Huber Love, seriously injured. Khalifa fled. He claims to not have known about his friend's plan to murder Love and wasn't even inside the house at the time of the murder. But, because of the felony murder rule, Khalifa was charged and found guilty of first-degree murder even though he never touched the homeowner. Legislature started moving through California courts to reform this rule 14 years after Khalifa was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. The new law, which went into effect January 1st, 2019, states that only someone involved or who had intent to kill or harm the victim could face murder charges. Other states have abolished it altogether, including Hawaii, Kentucky, Ohio, and Michigan. District attorneys in California are challenging the new law, but Khalifa was finally released from prison this month, February of 2020. Moving on to the degrees of murder, there are only two. It's pretty easy. There's first degree and second degree. First degree, which includes murder committed with premeditation and deliberation and murdering commission of certain dangerous felonies. And then there's second degree murder, which is literally everything else. Premeditation and deliberation are key to first degree murder charges. Deliberation implies a certain amount of time where the perpetrator is capable of reflecting on the act that they are about to commit. Premeditation means that the person deliberated at least for a short period of time before the act of killing. But there doesn't just need to be time for deliberation and premeditation. You also have to actually do those things and intend to kill the victim to be guilty of first-degree murder. Usually, deliberation and premeditation are established using circumstantial evidence since they are inherently subjective. Things that can help establish premeditation include a person possessing the murder weapon prior to the murder, a sneak attack on the victim, 
having made prior threats to harm the victim or inflicting wounds to vital parts of the victim's body. Using extremely cruel means to carry out your murder can also qualify it as first degree. This includes poison, torture, or lying in wait. These acts in and of themselves show both deliberation and intent. Second degree murder is simply anything other than first degree murder. This can include killing without premeditation or deliberation, killing resulting from an act done with intent to do great bodily harm, killing resulting from an act done with willful disregard or an unreasonable human risk, and in some jurisdictions, killings occurring in the course of a felony that is not inherently dangerous. Second-degree murder happens when the killer did not have the capacity to deliberate but still had the intention to kill the victim. Many jurisdictions will reduce a charge to second-degree murder based on diminished capacity or intoxication. So what's the deal with manslaughter then? Well, there's both voluntary and involuntary manslaughter, and manslaughter in and of itself occurs when there is intentional homicide under extenuating circumstances that can mitigate but not entirely justify the killing. So there's no malice aforethought present here. The most common type of voluntary manslaughter is called heat of passion, which is caused by provocation, which would cause a quote-unquote reasonable person to lose their normal self-control. There are three requirements that need to be met to constitute voluntary manslaughter. There has to be a legally adequate provocation. The killing has to be done in the sudden heat of passion, or in other words, following the provocation before there's reasonable opportunity for the passion to cool off. And there must be a causal connection between the provocation, the passion, and the subsequent killing. One example of provocation that would give rise to voluntary manslaughter is witnessing a spouse or a lover cheating on you. Clara Harris, who was recently let out on parole in 2018, was originally charged with first-degree murder of her husband in 2002. She hired a private investigator to follow her husband when she became suspicious that he was having an affair. The investigator tipped her off that her husband was at a hotel with his mistress. Clara drove there with her husband's daughter, her stepdaughter, in the back seat. She confronted her husband and his mistress in the lobby, allegedly attacking the mistress before hotel security escorted her back to her car. She then got in the car and proceeded to run over her husband multiple times, according to witnesses. Her stepdaughter, still in the back seat while all of this was happening, later testified against her, claiming she had asked Clara to stop. Clara had admitted to wanting to hurt her husband, but not to kill him. The jury determined Clara was guilty of the murder of her husband, but not first-degree murder. They found her guilty of what was called sudden passion at the time, in Texas, what we think about today as voluntary manslaughter, which carries a far lesser sentence than first-degree murder. The maximum for sudden passion was 20 years, whereas 20 years is the minimum for first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 20 years, 
and let out on parole after serving just 15. The jury had a hard time proving intent, premeditation, and deliberation. In order to reduce a killing from murder to voluntary manslaughter, there has to be evidence that the killer had not cooled off at the time of the killing. And in Clara's case, the killing occurred directly after the provocation or catching her husband with his mistress. Involuntary manslaughter is the other type of manslaughter that's considered an unintentional homicide, committed without malice, but still not justified or excused. Two main types of involuntary manslaughter are criminal negligence and unlawful act manslaughter. Criminal negligence manslaughter is any behavior that involves a high degree of risk of death or serious injury. This can include being an irresponsible camper who doesn't properly put out a fire, which spreads and burns down a nearby cabin, killing all of its inhabitants. It can also include situations where parents who seek medical treatment for their child with the flu ignore the doctor's recommendations and do not seek additional medical attention when the symptoms get worse, which ultimately end in the death of the child. Another real example was the Station Nightclub Fire. In 2003, in West Warwick, Rhode Island, Great White was playing a set at Station Nightclub. The fire started with pyrotechnics that were set off during the set. They immediately ignited flammable acoustic foam in the walls and the ceilings around the stage. The whole club was engulfed in black smoke within five and a half minutes. The exits were not clearly marked in this establishment. There were four accessible exits, but most attendants piled through the main door they had come in, crushing and killing many people in the process. There were reports that a bouncer was preventing attendants from leaving through the stage exit, claiming it was for the band only, which only adds an extra layer of negligence to this tragedy. The club was overcrowded, over legal capacity, which was set at 404, and attendance was recorded at 462. A hundred people ended up dying in this fire, and a further 230 people were injured. This is a really tragic example of criminal negligence manslaughter. We recently had a training at work for emergency preparedness, and the trainer showed the video of the fire starting, and it it was filmed through showing people actually piling up in the doorway. It was incredibly upsetting, but pretty effective at making me paranoid enough to detect every emergency exit in any building I enter from now on. And a final example of criminal negligence manslaughter could be killing a bicyclist with your car while driving drunk. Now the other type of involuntary manslaughter is unlawful act manslaughter, which is killing that occurs during another unlawful act that doesn't constitute a felony. A lot of traffic deaths end up falling into this category, though some states do have their own specific vehicular homicide laws that override this. At this point, you might be wondering, are there actually any homicides that aren't crimes? Well, if there's anything that you can justify or excuse, then it's not technically a crime. 
Justifiable homicide is homicide that is commanded or authorized by the law. This includes self-defense or defense of others, defense of your home, and killing done under authority. So soldiers who are killing in the line of duty would fall under this justifiable homicide, and police officers who kill dangerous felons trying to escape the scene of a crime also count, and anyone who defends their own life or another person's life by killing another person are all committing justifiable homicides. Now we'll get back to the police issue in a future episode because there's a big difference between shooting a dangerous felon and shooting an unarmed civilian who did nothing wrong. The latter is definitely not justifiable or excusable in my opinion. Now the courts do agree to some extent with me depending on the circumstances surrounding the case, uh, but we will, we will come back to that in a future episode. Now, excusable homicides occur when there is no criminal guilt attached to the killing. The distinction being that excusable homicides are not authorized by the law and the defenses used are not justifications for them. Excusable homicides include being under duress, necessity, mistaking the law or the facts, involuntary intoxication, and having some incapacity, usually being either infancy or insanity. Now, I know many of you may not agree that there are excusable or justifiable homicides, and there's certainly room for a healthy debate on the topic. But in terms of the law, all of these tragic events have to have some sort of order and hierarchy associated with them so we can determine punishment that best suits the crime. And as we discussed today, laws aren't perfect. There are many people out there fighting for reform that is so greatly needed for laws that were written over a century ago. Thank you so much for listening to episode five. The Forensic Files is officially on Google Podcasts as of last week. You can also listen on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate fm which is linked in the episode notes you can also listen on apple podcasts spotify stitcher along with many other platforms you can find me on instagram at the forensic files pod please reach out if you have any questions corrections suggestions or requests the email for this podcast is the forensic files pod at gmail.com all episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in this episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young. <laughs>